This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and with us now Robert Costa, Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent for CBS News. Uh, Robert, I think it's fair to say Democrats uh, seem to be worried. They seem to get a blip of support over the summer in some of the polling, but it now looks like the Republicans are positioned to take over Congress after all, despite the January 6th committee, et cetera, et cetera. What's your assessment of that? That's a fair assessment. I've spent the last few weeks on the campaign trail talking to candidates, and they know they're facing economic headwinds on the Democratic side. Just got back from Ohio, for example, for CBS Evening News, and Tim Ryan, the Senate candidate there for the Democrats, said he doesn't want President Biden to campaign with him because it wouldn't be a help in a state like Ohio because so many voters feel economic pain, and the Democrats are the party in power. The question is, can the Democrats bring the spotlight on issues like infrastructure, like the American Rescue Plan, in the final few weeks. And that's why when Margaret Brennan sits down this Sunday on Face the Nation with Speaker Pelosi, those are the kind of questions that need to be asked and will be asked by Margaret, because the Democrats have such a narrow majority now, it's going to take a real strategy and a little luck to hold on to it. They focused, of course, the January 6th committee focused on the threat to democracy, which is one of the themes that the Democrats have tried to push in this election. Has that been a failure? It has not broken through with many voters. You look at Democratic ads, that's often indicative of what where they're going. Only about 2% based on a political report have used January 6th in advertising for the Democrats. That, that tells you a lot about which messages they believe will land with voters and which messages won't. At the same time, January 6th has been an issue in many races because it shines a light on Republican candidates and how they handle former President Trump how they handle issues about democracy. So it's not an issue that's maybe at the front of this election, but it is something that informs how voters think about candidates and their loyalty to the former president. It almost seems to backfire because uh, you're the expert on polls here, but there was a poll showing that more people think the Democratic Party is the threat to democracy than think that Republicans are. The January 6th committee had a lot of momentum in the summer. They had those live witnesses, uh, they had some hearings that were drawing millions of viewers. Uh, then they took about six, seven weeks off, had the final hearing that didn't have live witnesses. And so like the abortion issue, uh, January 6th and democracy were really issues that came up during the summer. And since then, uh, the Democrats have been burdened by having the economic situation on their back, uh, by being seen as a party that's in power, but not necessarily helping people with, to lower gas prices, food prices. Democrats, of course, would argue they're doing numerous things to address those issues. Uh, but it, the, the polling really shows not just how voters feel, but it shows how Democrats have struggled to counter the Republican narrative. Yeah. So uh, if the Republicans do take over both houses uh, after this election, uh, can you give us some informed speculation on what might be next? I mean, I've heard talk about a uh, Biden impeachment that the Republicans want to cut off uh, at least part of the aid to Ukraine, uh, another debt fight, et cetera. I sat down yesterday with Jim Banks, the Indiana congressman Republican, who is the head of the conservative group in the House called the Republican Study Committee. And everything you just outlined is on the table. Impeachment, not necessarily of President Biden, but of Secretary Mayorkas at DHS uh, for the immigration issue that's on the table. A debt limit showdown sometime next year is on the table. That could be a major financial and fiscal issue sometime next year, whenever that comes up. 
if the Republicans want cuts in, extent, in, in exchange for a debt limit extension. And you're going to have um, Ukraine spending certainly beyond the block uh, because Jim Banks and Kevin McCarthy, two top House Republicans, have both said publicly they don't want a blank check for the war in Ukraine. And you, of course, have uh, helped write a book about Donald Trump. And I was I asked Maggie Haberman when she was doing the uh, interviews for her book, uh, does she think Trump is going to run? And she says, yes, if only to protect himself from prosecution. What do you think? He is moving toward a run. He's telling everybody he wants to run. Whenever I call into Trump's inner circle, I'm told a run is still very much likely to happen. This is something he's thinking about. And he wants to continue to dominate the Republican Party. He's not eager to see someone like Governor Yunkin of Virginia or Governor DeSantis of Florida somehow emerge as the new post-Trump heir to his movement and his base. He still feels he's active politically. He's on the march holding all these rallies, and he wants to hold on to that political capital. And do you feel, I know I'm asking for your opinion here, but I'll just say, uh, Maggie Haberman says that if he wins, because I asked him, I asked her, if if he wins, will he try to change his approach to something that might be a little more, you know, effective than what he did last time, or will Trump be Trump? And she says he is not going to change. It would be Trump too, and if if anything, he would feel uh, less inhibited than Trump won. That's, I, I agree with her assessment, and she and I have covered Trump for a long time. She's covered him longer. I've covered him at least since 2011. And he is someone who doesn't change, and he became more comfortable with the presidency and with political power uh, throughout his four years in the White House. There's no doubt about that. So if he comes back, there's not any indication he would change in any way. Uh, This is someone who got used to uh, using the levers of power, enjoyed the process by the end in a way he didn't at the beginning when he was a bit of a novice to governing. Robert Costa, chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News. Robert, thank you. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Here it is Friday and time for our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, to drag us all over the map. And uh, this week, from San Diego to Seattle to Port Townsend, a nondescript sheet metal building might be the oldest, most historic, and most well-traveled airplane hangar in the Evergreen State. Felix, tell us about this. Well, this is some uh, breaking history news and yet another all-over-the-map exclusive. Mm-hmm. It comes from Lee Corbin, a military and aviation historian and great friend of this show. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the original airfield at Sandpoint, now Magnuson Park. It dates to the early 20s. It was a home for both Army and Navy aircraft. Lee just started a deep dive on Sandpoint history in advance of the centennial of the Around the World flight that we also talked about last month. Now, visible in many of the old photos from the 1920s is this big hangar, steel frame covered in sheet metal with a big door, big windows for light, measured about 65 by 140 and was the biggest structure at Sandpoint for most of that decade. Now, Lee figured out that the hangar was already secondhand when it was reassembled at Sandpoint in early 1923. And originally had been used down in San Diego by the Army at a place called Rockwell Field, probably during World War I. Now, once it was in use at Sandpoint, it probably housed those four around-the-world uh, flight Army planes, those Douglas World Cruisers, for several weeks in 1924. And then, now, this is pretty cool. Thanks to some old silent film in the UW collection, Lee is convinced that a very famous aviator parked his equally famous airplane in that hangar on September 13, 1927. If you watch for just about three or four seconds... There's a portion of it where they're pushing the Spirit of St. Louis into this hangar. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and the windows match up and everything like that uh, with what the current hangar looks like. 
So Charles Lindbergh, after wow. f- yeah, so Charles Lindbergh he flew solo across the Atlantic in May 1927, which my four-year-old father remembers hearing about on the radio. He's mm-hmm. deceased now, of course. Now Lindbergh also toured all over the U.S. He came to Seattle. As it turns out, he parked the Spirit of St. Louis in the Sandpoint Hangar. Now Lee Corbin also figured out that in March 1931, that old hangar was dismantled by troops from Fort Lawton. They put it on a barge and took it over to Fort Warden near Port Townsend. It was then shipped several miles south of town to a military installation called Old Fort Townsend. It's now a state park, but they had a new emergency airstrip and needed a hangar. Now, not many people have heard of the emergency airstrip at Old Fort Townsend because back in 1947, the Army gave it to Jefferson County. It's now the Jefferson County Airport, which is still there south of town, right along the edge of the highway. You see low-flying aircraft and everything. Now... Lee did some further digging. Turns out that the old hangar, which at least 100 years old, is still standing and still in good shape, still in use every day at the airport. Uh, Michael Hauser is a state architectural historian. He told me in an email he thinks it's likely eligible for the state or even National Register of Historic Places. So I spoke with Eric Taves on Thursday. He's deputy director of the Port of Port Townsend, the operators of the airport. He loves Port Townsend history, but his feelings about the potential historic register, eh, I would say they're a little mixed. Excited, yes, but, um, you know, very much cognizant of the challenges that historic structures present. Very diplomatic. Um, Now, this is a developing story, and it was just late yesterday. Lee figured out that what Port Townsend has is called the United States All-Steel Hangar. It's a standardized design developed in 1918 for airfields all around the country and training stations. There might be a similar one down at Fort Vancouver, the old Pearson Airfield. But this is the way that, you know, the federal government links us all together by having these similar structures all over the country. This is the earliest days of this kind of standardized construction. It's pretty amazing. So this is the hangar where Charles Lindbergh's plane was once parked, though it wasn't in Port Townsend when the plane was parked there. Correct. It was at Sandpoint. And then they moved it over to Port Townsend. But it also housed those around-the-world cruisers, that those famous uh, yeah. planes that flew around the uh, world in 1924. Are there any historic planes parked there now? You know, it's a place called Tailspin Tommy's. It's an it's a it's an airplane maintenance facility. I'm sure lots of famous planes go there to have their oil change or whatever you have to do to airplane engines. I'm not an expert on that, Dave. I'm I sorry. see. Well, that needs a plaque somewhere. <laughs> Felix Spinell, all his features at mynorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Last night in Seattle's Central District, hundreds of people gathered for a candlelight vigil to remember a young business owner and community leader who was shot and killed in front of the business he owned with his wife. Kyron News Radio's Hannah Scott joins us now, along with Omari Salisbury from Converge Media. I saw the video of the, uh, of the memorial last night, the hundreds of balloons released into the air. So, uh, Hannah, tell us about Devon Pickett Jr. He was a, a pillar of the community. He was someone who, he, he and his wife started the business, the postman, very well known. Uh, he spoke a lot to Amari about uh, how it was such a big deal to do that, to, to show others in the community what they could accomplish and help them to dream about what they could do, set maybe a different goal so they didn't have to fit in a, a box that maybe others think that they they had to, um, and really learn how to dream. He also was, we've talked before about the CD Panthers, uh, a year or so ago when the young right. kids on that youth football team uh, there was gunfire that happened as they were out their practice field and they had to all run fleeing uh, he was a head coach for the cd panthers and really a, a youth mentor and and a good good friend of our friend amari salisbury's so amari tell me more about the, the i mean you've talked to us about the situation before the shootings you feel it's out of control something more has to be done do, do we have any any reason for why this happened and why he was targeted? Uh, good morning, Dave. Good morning, Hannah. First and foremost, I want to say thank you for, again, allowing the opportunity and space to discuss these important issues uh, on Cairo FM. 
Um, as details are still you know, coming out around this. I don't want to get ahead of the police, but, you know, I can't say that it was a senseless act of violence. You know, there, there's there's no real motive or anything um, that, that we see. It's just senseless violence. Um, you know, I'm sure more details will come out here shortly. But, you know, I, I would say that, unfortunately, I talked to you in 2020 about this. I talked to you in 2021 and now 2022. Well, they've got a suspect at least, so uh, I guess uh, that's good. But, I mean, what what else needs to happen? I mean, the latest thing I heard uh, in terms of trying to get control of the the uh, gunfire is setting up these uh, gunshot detectors so that police could immediately respond anytime there's something that uh, meets the profile of a, of a gunshot. What do you think about that? Well, I, I, would, I would like to even take a step back before that, Dave, but I think that... We- you know, the city of Seattle right now is, is is definitely being impacted by a rise in violence and violent crimes. But we need to remember that in my neighborhood and where I come from, this is something that we've been dealing with for decades and been waving our hands, saying that we want to be safe in our communities. We've been jumping up and down for anybody to pay attention. You know, it's it's on the radar now because, you know, different parts of the city are impacted but this is something that we've been dealing with. I dealt with this as a, as a high school student at Garfield High School with my friends being murdered and everything else. Um, you know, I, me personally, I, I'm, I'm glad that there are, you know, that, that people are looking at this issue in a broader kind of way. Um, you know, that, that there's more attention that goes to it. But, you know, oftentimes what happens, Dave, is that when certain neighborhoods when crime is reduced there, then uh, people tend to think that crime is reduced the rest of the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our neighborhood goes back to being ignored. So you're, it sounds like you're saying we've been focusing on downtown, but the central area has been left out. Is that what you're saying? Um, I mean, that's just the facts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, it, it's, this, is, this is something, this is a very uh, big issue that we've continuously dealt with and it isn't really until other areas of our city are impacted by violence or gun violence that there is a citywide conversation that hey let's do something and everything else people don't realize like i said we've been waving our hands jumping up and down for anyone to pay attention to this issue but you mentioned that in high school uh, sorry uh, you mentioned in high school you saw your friends murdered you grew up in you know in the central district as did everyone most of those community has been there a very long time what's different if anything now from the shootings and things that you saw when you were going to high school is is, is anything changed i mean there's not a lot that's changed unfortunately this morning and you know of course i'm down i'm depressed about it about what's going on you know, I think that what what we do see right now, though, is we see more and more community response. You know, not necessarily community as in the response as in replace nine one one, but community response as in people being like, "Hey, you know what? We have to be more hands on in our community and what's going on. We, the community, the stakeholders in the community, we have to come on." I think that's more. You saw that last year around the CD Panthers. When there was a shooting up there on the um, up there on the practice field, more and more people are coming out and saying, "Man, that this is just totally unacceptable." 
Well, but what does that mean then on the ground? Because the political fight has been, do we, uh, for example, elect a city attorney who's going to put him in jail or a city attorney who's going to talk about, uh, you know, social reform and and prevention? We seem to have uh, decided that, uh, you know, like diversion court and uh, restorative justice might work in the long run, but is not working in the short run. So do you think there has to be some kind of uh, crackdown by the city on, for example, I don't know, guns in circulation or uh, rounding up uh, people who are members of gangs? I mean, what actually has to happen? I, I think there's a comprehensive kind of question here. One, one I think that, you know, that I don't think that police are letting people walk around just, you know, and run guns. You see what I'm saying? Uh, I think that, that, you know, and people in... Let me stop right here. Dave, before this comes a political issue, what I'm telling you, you keep asking me what needs to be done. And what I'm telling you is from my perspective in my community and my neighborhood is that we, the people in our community, it needs to start. What I, you know what? City Hall ain't going to save us. Mm-hmm. They ain't never saved us. What's the expectation that no matter who's elected, that they're coming to save black folk in this city? You know what I'm saying? It's really a call for us to realize what we need to do within our own community. And what does that look like? So so what is it that the community itself, then, if the city can't help, then what does the community have to do, in your opinion? I think the community needs to get more engaged. Hmm. I think think that that's one of the things to do. And also, you know, one thing that can't be stopped, no matter what, is is a senseless act of violence. I mean, when someone just pops out of somewhere and decides to murder somebody... Uh, you know, unfortunately, but what what needs to happen on our end is more engagement in our community. Um, and we need to resource ourselves and our young people. And we need to look at that. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure the city and the government, they have their solutions, but I can only really speak to what our community solutions are. And our community solutions are, we have to get off the sideline. We have to get off the sideline and we need to get engaged. Before we wrap up, I, uh, the vigil that you were at last night with hundreds of people and, and Devon's wife, uh, who was just, just, uh, searching for answers. How's the family and, and is there any way for anyone to help? I mean, the family is devastated and the neighborhood, the community is devastated. And thank you for, for bringing that up. And so we can move away from the politics. Remember that the six youth, uh, youth team at the CD Panthers, the six and under kids, their head coach was just murdered, right? So, I'm, you know, I'm not really caught up on City Hall. I'm talking about that. Our youth, again, are impacted. There's a GoFundMe that's coming out. I'll tweet it out here in a little bit. I just got the information from the family, so people can find me on Twitter. I'll send it over to you guys in case you want to post it there. But just know that before all the finger pointing begins, you know, well, this is a community, a neighborhood in mourning, young people in mourning. It's a devastating loss to our community. Amari Salisbury from Converge Media and Kyra Sandescott. Thank you both. I am impressed by us right now. Your daily daily dose of kindness is brought to you by Baird. Airline workers went the extra mile to make sure one little boy's prized possession got the VIP treatment. We get this story from CBS's Chris Van Cleve. Glow Jones has been checking bags at Burbank, California's airport for two decades, but she'd never seen anything like this, a dinosaur the size of a small child. And he's scary looking, but he was really adorable. Eight-year-old Rowan Francois got this guy on vacation with no thought of how to get him home. It's almost as big as me. I thought it was going to break the whole time. So you were worried about it making it home? 
Yeah. But Southwest Airlines baggage handler Brian Cisneros and his co-workers were determined that wouldn't happen. When I saw it, you know, we locked eyes. And what he saw, a VIP Rex in need of very special treatment. It wasn't in the box, so our concern was taking care of it. We gave it a specific cart by itself, took it to the gates, and when we loaded the dinosaur in the bin, we put it in the center bin, which is by himself. And when it finally got home to Spokane... I would like to show you other, uh, one more thing. A reunion made possible by going the extra mile. Chris Van Cleve, CBS News. You know what we had to do? We had to put a, a air tracker, like one of those Apple air tags, yeah. into my daughter's, June's, my three-year-old's prize stuffed animal because she kept leaving it <laughs> places. So now we track it. She Both doesn't know. crying out loud. She doesn't learn, know. She's got to learn to lose stuff and get over it. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. If you've ever dealt with a toddler who lost their stuffy, you know that that's forbidden. Yeah, well, well. 749 and now from the Gianursula Show, which starts at 9 right here on Cairo News Radio. Here's G. Scott. We're talking about Halloween decorations. Mm-hmm. Are you a Halloween decorator? I'm not. No. Um, I'm not artistic at all. I can't decorate anything, I don't have the creativity. The mind that way. I was. Um, I'm always in awe of people that do decorate their homes, and, and it's pretty cool. I'm jealous of those homes. You don't even put up like a dollar store Halloween sign. By the way, no. dollar store best place to get like decorations. No. I, I, I say all the time. Like I want to be. See, when I was younger. We all in the neighborhood knew the house, right? You knew the houses that were like, okay, look, we, when we go, we're going to go to that side. Remember them? They're oh, they going to give you, hook you up. I'm trying to be that house, but it's not working. Now, I know we just came through the pandemic, but I've been buying big candy bars, and I've been trying to have something. So this year, I think I'm going to have Roblox cards. You feel me? Wow. Yeah. I want to. So I want to. I want to be known in the neighborhood like that person. Now, did you ever have someone in your neighborhood, the house that you went to, you're like, we got to go to that house? Yes. we had. There was actually three types of home, if I'm counting right. There's the home that leaves the bowl of candy out. Okay. <laughs> there's the home that gives out the king size. Right. And then there's the home that hands out the Halloween is evil booklets. Oh. <laughs> we had one of those too, yeah, and we yeah. always went thinking it's going to be different this year. They're going to have. Do they candy. leave gives you some candy with the Halloween like evil booklet? I think they a like penny. taped a penny into no the care. booklet, but yeah, they really yeah. wanted us to know that Halloween's evil. Dave, I, I don't want to do this, and I probably shouldn't do this. But do you give out Halloween candy? Oh, yes. Do I? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I believe you. Now, in that Halloween candy, I'm yeah. scared to ask you this. Yeah, is there? Tootsie Rolls and candy corn? Werther's? Not, no. Werther's? I avoid candy corn. Okay. I get the variety pack of the little fun size uh, versions of, basically, gee, I buy the candy that I will have to eat the rest of the year when nobody comes. (laughs) Okay. But you're not much of a candy eater, so are you sort of... Oh, little do you know. (laughs) Yeah, if you have it around, you'll eat it. Yeah, so I get like like Twix. Uh, I would probably get, um, you know, those uh, Ferro Rocher chocolate things. You you hand out... Those are really nice. Almond Ro- oh the Ferrero Rocher. Yeah. I was thinking Almond, Almond Roca. Roca. I like Almond Roca too. So you know, I hand that out to you, fam. Well, you know, little little individual. Class it up. You know, These kids size. don't know what good candy yeah. is. Now, do you do you stand out there and give no. it to them? Well, no, I, I don't stand outside at all. I sometimes don't even have a pumpkin. I leave the porch light on. If somebody's brave enough to walk through the vegetation in our front yard and come to the door, yeah, I want to make sure they have. Do some you give candy. them a handful? 
or do you give them it one on how if greedy, the costume is lame, uh, two if it's Later good. in the evening when the teenagers show up, yeah. I have to meter it out because they'll just grab everything. That's true. Um, the little kids, though, yeah, I mean, I let them reach in. Sometimes they come with pillowcases. I assess how full it is and before, you know. Should should dollar uh-huh. is dollar bills cool? And dollar bills, that's absolutely. exciting. I've never done that. Before. You know what I'm saying? And I'm th- look, Are this you doing year, that? I'm I'm handing out dollar bills, yeah. Roblox cards. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to do it all because I want them to be like, "Woo, we this gonna go to house. G's house." With yeah. No decorations. They just have to trust this is gonna be the house. <laughs> How about shares <laughs> of Netflix stock? <laughs> <laughs> Could you might. imagine Dave handing out <laughs> stock <laughs> options? Yeah. Yeah, like, like, Wait a minute, Disney stock <laughs> options? Yeah. You guys think it's weird if I'm in the house with no decorations but handing out cool stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a great, uh, that's a niche that uh, isn't filled by enough people. True, yeah, yeah. You know, the house that is un- not presumptuous, but if, <laughs> if you're on the inside, if you've got the secret, if you know, yeah. that's the house to hit. That's the house. Now, we're supposed to talk to you about the Seahawks, and we have like 45 seconds left. Well, it's going to be simple. Uh, the Seahawks are traveling down to L.A. Uh, they'll leave tomorrow to head down there. Uh, they play on Sunday. They play against the Chargers, the L.A. Chargers. And bless their hearts because it goes uh, Lakers and then it goes uh, Clippers and then way at the bottom it goes Chargers. Nobody watches the Chargers in L.A. So basically it's going to be a home game for uh, uh, the Seahawks. Seattle will probably have more fans in SoFi Stadium than the Chargers. I'll be down there. I know Dave Dave is going to ask me the prediction of the score. I'll get to that that in a second. Um, But Geno Smith and the Seahawks need to go ahead and win this game against a kind of tired Chargers team because uh, Colleen, they just played on Monday night. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so they didn't just play four quarters. They played like five quarters yeah. almost during that game. So they're going to be tired. They need to take advantage of it. I'm going to go ahead and call it right now, Dave. The score is going to be 31-17 Seahawks. 31-17 Seahawks. Yeah. I like the way that yeah, sounds. Yeah. I'm yeah. feeling it. No, it's yeah. very good. It's, yeah, like, I'm, it's, it's I'm, like you've played football before. I'm going to go down and check out, check them out. I can't wait. You're going to L.A.? Yeah, I'm going to L.A. Hey, good for yeah, you. Go to, go to Hollywood. You're going like to the fresh air here to go get more smog down in L.A.? <laughs> Is that the deal? I mean, yeah. yeah. That's all Kinda. right. Your lungs are ready. We prepared you. <laughs> All right. Smog is classier down there. Yeah, exactly. Gian Ursula at 9 o'clock on Cairo Radio. So the rain is here. Smoke season is over. I have that on the authority of at least two meteorologists. So let's talk about next year. Joining us live now, Governor Jay Inslee. And uh, a couple of questions. First of all, how do we prepare for next season? And I, I kept hearing that we deliberately did not drop water or fire retardants on the, uh, on the Bull Creek fire. And so people want to know about that. So uh, how do we prepare for next year? Well, first off, I saw fire suppression. Actually, I was flying back from Yakima, and so I saw aerial fire suppression going on there. So I'm not sure where that information is coming from. But listen, there's three things we need to do in these fires. This is a long-term risk for us, and we have to understand we have to do three things. Number one, the obvious, which is to increase our firefighting resources, which we're doing. We have dramatically increased in the last couple of years under our budgets and others. The number of firefighting units, the number of trained personnel, we're going to have to continue to bolster that over time. Number two, we need to continue what we're doing right now, which is a very dramatic increase in the management of our forests to try to thin them, to reduce the fuels. Uh, and we have done that. We've done about 70,000 acres of prescribed burns. We've got a goal of treating about 1.25 million acres, and we're well on our way to do that to try to reduce some of the fuel load in the forest that have become uh, very choked in in a lot of circumstances because of previous decades of fire. 
suppression. But number three, the, the big enchilada here is the thing we have to do, which is the only thing that can give us a chance of restraining these incredibly voracious fires, and that's to defeat climate change. And so we've got to continue the efforts that we're making, and we're making good progress to, to get Washingtonians clean energy so we can reduce carbon pollution, so we can do our part to reduce climate change, because there are no forces on Earth that can prevent these catastrophic fires, which have now increased dramatically in the western United States, probably doubled in the last several decades, because the forests are just time bombs. They're just, they're just dynamite waiting there to go because they're so dry, they're so hot, there's such high wind. And that's really the thing we have to do over time. Now, we recognize because of decades of not listening to the scientists that we're behind the curve on this, so we've got to accelerate our efforts to give us a clean energy economy. That's ultimately really the only thing that's going to give us a chance to keep forests as we know them in the western United States. And so uh, I don't like breathing this. I don't like my grandkids breathing this. I hate the thought that our kids can't go out and play, for goodness sakes. So we've got to defeat climate change, and we are uh, well on our way uh, doing that in Washington State. Well, you've been governor for the last decade. How have you not been doing something sooner, knowing that you've been the climate change governor and presidential candidate for, for years, and now you're saying... We've known this for decades, and here it is. So I'm confused as to who's responsible for this. It sounds like you have been in the last decade. Well, fortunately, we have made progress in the last several years while I've been governor that now have the best climate change policies in the United States. But the smoke season is only getting worse, Governor. You have made progress, yes, but the smoke season is here. So we need solutions from you. Unfortunately, we do. And fortunately, we've had uh, some majorities in our state that have been able to move the needle on clean energy. We now have the best cap and invest bill to limit carbon pollution in the country. That's not going to stop the smoke, Governor. I I hear you talking about all of these climate change. That does not impact the wildfires and the smoke season we're enduring. Can we do more now? Are we using the big planes to dump more water? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You may not have listened the first three minutes, but we are doing dramatically increased fire suppression. We are doing dramatically increased by multitudes of the number of acres we treat. That means to reduce the fuel in the forest, and we are doing that. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're fire retardants. The, the, the question that I saw on, online was uh, fire retardants. Were there fire retardants actually dropped on this fire? Well, I saw a helicopter working this fire myself uh, last week, so I'm not sure where that information is coming from. But we have increased dramatically. We now have $125 million every biennium in contributions to increase the resources we have to fight these fires. The point I'm making is we have increased the fire suppression capability of the state of Washington dramatically in the last several years. But importantly, we have also increased the number of acres that we treat. That means to get in and reduce the fuels to get them, to get some of the, uh, uh, the timber out and some of the brush out to reduce the fuels. And, and now we've had 70,000 acres of prescribed burns uh, just uh, since 2017. So we're doing those things. But I want to be repeat, there is not enough forces in the world today. You put every firefighter in the world today and every aerial applicator in the world today, it cannot prevent these fires when they're time bombs. And that's why we've had a doubling of these giant forest fires across the western United States, regardless of how much suppression we have. The only way in the long term that we will save these forests is to stop climate change long term. Now, can that be solved by noon tomorrow? Of course not. 
but we've got to continue our efforts. It should have started 20 years ago, and I have been working on this for about 15 or 20 years, and a lot of these have been stopped because we have one party, unfortunately, in our state, in our country, that has refused to help on this. We've only had one party. We've had sort of one arm on this issue. I look forward to the day when both parties are willing to work on this this subject, which will will, uh, accelerate our efforts dramatically. I only see the wildfire seasons getting worse and closer to the greater Seattle area. So I'm not sure if these efforts are enough, 125 million for firefighting efforts. Hillary Franz has been asking for double that. Uh, What's coming next in the legislature for fire suppression? I think you'll see an increased appetite as the years go by to continue to increase these resources. And you're right, we were going to have to do that because a lot of the climate change is baked into the climate because we've had a a century plus now of of carbon dioxide pollution, and it stays in the air for sometimes 100 years. So there's no question that this is a long-term challenge for us. This is not just a seasonal thing. We are going to be facing this for decades in the western United States, obviously not just our state. So you're right. We are going to continue this acceleration of this capacity, including, as I've said, in the management of our forests. We are doing that uh, by multitudes of dollars, of of tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're doing that, and we've got to continue. Some people want to backslide on our climate change efforts. I think that would be a huge mistake. We now are developing a clean energy economy in our state, which is putting people to work. I'm just thrilled to see two uh, advanced battery companies going into Moses Lake here, Silicon Anode Batteries, that were just announced a couple days ago. Yeah, we're getting uh, off topic from the, the fires, Governor. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, we really want to talk about the fire suppression and the smoke suppression in the region. So, you know, we're proud yeah, of those local is, efforts, listen, too. This is the fire. This is the fire issue. Batteries? Climate change is the fire. Yes, because we have to find a way to power our cars and our electrical grid on electricity rather than gasoline. That is if we, we need to do that to suppress these fires. The point I'm trying to make is, We are doing everything humanly possible to fight these fires. We're doing our management of our forests to reduce the fuels. But ultimately, we have to stop carbon pollution, which is the ultimate reason these fires are swallowing the Western United States. This is a fire issue. Now, it's also an issue whether we're going to have salmon in our rivers if the water is too hot to kill the salmon. It's also an issue of job creation. But it is the master thing we have to get done is the point I want to make. I get it. Yeah. I think the feedback from those we talk to, the listeners, is, you know, this season, this firefighting effort gets a, what, D minus F, would you say? I mean, we've been choking on the smoke. So I appreciate everything and and we appreciate everything you're trying to do for climate change and fire suppression. But you need to listen to the people. This is bad. They want change. They want want more fire suppression and we are providing more fire suppression assets. They want more management for us. And we're doing that as well. These things are being done, and we are increasing our ability to fight these fires. So that's going on. And if anyone wants further information, they can contact my office, and we'll talk about the more specifics. But this isn't just us. It's hurricanes in Florida. It's Pakistan under one-third of the whole country uh, underwater. This is an international thing. This is our share of climate change, and it's most unfortunate. And I want to assure people that we are going to continue to build our capacity to respond to these fires. But we're also doing the long-term thing that has to be done to save our forests. And we are, we are absolutely dedicated to that. Governor Jay Inslee. Governor, thanks for coming on. You bet. You can ring my bell. Ring your bell.
Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien with Dave Ross. And Rachel Bell is here to tell you, you cannot let influencers diagnose you. The Washington Post reports that as of August, TikTok videos with hashtag mental health in the caption have more than 43.9 billion views. That's according to the analytics company Sprout Social. And there are all kinds of content creators with millions of followers doling out mental health advice without the education or qualifications to back it up. I get served a lot of mental health content on Instagram and TikTok. That's Tatum Hunter, technology reporter for The Washington Post. Tatum has written a couple articles on the topic, including her latest, How to Vet Mental Health Advice on TikTok and Instagram. A mental health creator might just have a passion for the topic, or they might have found that talking about depression and anxiety is really relatable. People react to it and it boosts their views and their followers. It's important to remember the incentives of social media, which are to get eyeballs onto your content. And when it comes to talking about our health, those incentives can be really misaligned. The problem is some people use these content creators as a replacement for actual therapy. They might self-diagnose themselves with disorders they don't actually have, and no one is vetting the information. So there are a few things you can do to validate a creator or a piece of mental health content you see on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, wherever. One is to look at the creator's qualifications. Somebody who is a licensed therapist or doctor, it doesn't automatically make them a mental health expert, but it sure does help. Or at least it makes it less likely that they're spreading misinformation. Um, I'd also caution people to beware of kind of slippery titles like coach or expert. I'll note that a lot of people have had bad experiences with licensed healthcare providers, but it's not a reason to give up on fact-finding or to turn to people who might just be taking advantage of the fact that we're all hanging out on an advertising app. Some common topics of discussion are anxiety, depression, and ADHD. If you scroll this content long enough, you will notice these themes. One that I think is easy to talk about is narcissism. If you hang around on TikTok or Instagram, you've probably seen content about, you know, dealing with a narcissist or signs your partner or parents are a narcissist. Clinical narcissism is real. It's relatively rare. And it's dangerous to diagnose other people based on content that you see on social media. The more you engage with these posts and creators, the more the algorithm will serve them up. And being constantly bombarded by mental health messages can overexpose someone to these topics. Mental illness is not an identity and it's not a static state. You can get better and community should provide support and not just reinforcing the idea that there's something wrong with you. Tatum understands the draw to these content creators. Young people were very isolated during the pandemic. A lot of people don't have access to mental health care or the insurance to pay for it. And it's an easy way to connect with people who feel the same way that you do. I can't walk into the middle of the street in San Francisco and yell, I suffer from anxiety and like have anyone respond to me or make friendships. (laughs) And so social media does help you feel less alone. And that also comes with risk. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.